0: Now we can jump into 1 Corinthians. The title of today's sermon is All Things Are Yours. All things are yours. Now, my wife and I have been married for about 14 years, coming up on 15. and so I'm trying to remember, because I know 15 is a big one. I can't lose track, lose track of that. Being married, for those of you who are married, you know it, it comes with a lot of, of things. A lot of things. A lot of good things. A lot of good things. And maybe one of the, some of the more complicated things that marriage comes with is marriage is not just between a man and a woman kind of coming together, forming and creating a new family unit, although it is, it certainly is that, but it's also a part of it is the husband and wife, the husband kind of joining the wife's family, and the wife joining the husband's family, in you know, in-law sort of way, if you're tracking with me. All right, so Ann and I, my, my family lives in Texas, hers in Missouri, so there's not a whole lot of overlap as far as like them, you know, getting to know each other really well, and even when we were dating, they didn't get to meet very much just due to the distance, but one of the things that I think Anna especially kind of realized as she married me and became part of my family was that she maybe got a little more than she bargained for in some areas, right? Um, th- there's some stuff that came with that. Now, both of our families are, uh, we were raised in Christian homes, and we have great relationships with them, so I don't want any of this to color that, but one of the things, the differences between our families is my, my family's very much a morning family. We get up early in the morning. My parents, like, like, I don't, I don't think they've, I've ever seen them wear pajamas. They just wake up dressed and ready to go for the day. Like, we, we don't drink coffee. We don't need coffee. We're just kind of ready for the day, right? And, and so 6.30 a.m., they're just kind of ready and ready to do some projects, do some activities and that sort of thing. And Anna's family wasn't like that, probably like many of your families. or more many normal families. You, you wake up and you kind of want to just leisurely kind of stroll into the day and, and kind of sit around the living room and talk and... Just kind of wake up and drink some coffee, sip on some cider or whatever, and and kind of wake yourself up. But but I remember the first time, first time we we stayed at my parents' house, and Anna came out of the bedroom in the morning, and it was like boom. I mean, she, it was just you know, and my family didn't mean anything by it. That's just how we roll. That's just how we roll. And it was a it was a big shock to her, and she's since gotten used to that and kind of. Uh, figured out some ways to cope with it, like staying in the bedroom for longer till she's fully more fully awake till she comes out and that sort of stuff, um, you know. And then and then also, there's not only the immediate family that you become a part of, but it's the extended family, and we know that can all that can get a little hairy sometimes too, right? I know my my mom has three sisters, so there's four girls in the family, and they um, they love the University of Texas football team. Now now they are and they all live around the Austin area down there, and. I remember early in our marriage, we, Anna was, uh, we were at my grandparents' house, and all four sisters were there, my aunts, and the Texas Longhorns were on football, and it was quite an experience for Anna to experience them, them watching it. They, I mean, nothing, nothing vulgar or crazy, but they were very passionate and intense, about, about their team, and I know none of you are like that with any teams around here, but um, it, it was quite a wake-up call for her, and that she started to realize that, yeah, this is going to just become part of my life, becoming a family with Derek, I'm going to get all this stuff, right? Right? And I, you know, I'm not going to say any of the things I had to put up with on her side because well, first service, my sister-in-law had come into town, and maybe I could get away with it now. But I'm, I'm still out of respect for them. Um, they, they know, they know that I love them, and um, even when I put up with their um, little weird things too. So, and, and I know many of you have experienced the same thing. But this idea that that becoming part of a family, we we tend there's a lot that comes with it. I, I think. Let's connect that real quick to, to become, becoming part of the family of God. There, there's a lot that comes with it, and that's what we're going to talk about today, what, what Paul is going to explain to us. And it's a, a, we've been given so much by being part of the family of God, by being a child of God, it's, it, but it's so much in the best way possible, not in the, the complicated and, and sometimes not fun ways of us as humans joining families. Today, I want us to be reminded, as we look at Paul's letter to the church in Corinthians. And maybe some of us might realize for the first time that why our lives as Christians should be radically different because of what we have, because of, of who we are. I really believe today could be life-changing for us this morning, not, not because I'm such an eloquent speaker, or have better jokes than Pastor Michael, or anything like that. Obviously, that, that's not going to have any transforming power in our lives. But but I really believe the truth that we'll talk about today could be life changing. I know it's. I, I feel a little bit, you know, this idea as you kind of already know. All things are yours. That, that's the, the big idea of today's sermon. It, it's a big concept, and I feel a little ill-equipped to to explain this to you. But we, with the Spirit's help, um, I hope that we can all within each of our lives be able to grasp this in a greater way. All right. The Corinthian church, as we know, as you've been here the last few weeks. Has, has some big problems in it. And that's what Paul is addressing in the first couple of chapters. They are spiritually immature. They've exalted human leaders and exalted human wisdom to this place where it's causing a lot of division within the church. And they, they were kind of tempted in this way because that was really the culture at that time, if if you remember. You know, they elevated, they, they thought it was really wise to kind of philosophize and, and say wise things, stand on a street corner and then just kind of like, gravitate towards that person. And so they were doing that within the church, like, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, and uh, these church leaders. And they were claiming to be wise in that. But it's kind of ironic that that Paul says, your claims of being wise, you you claim to be wise, but you're actually being foolish. And and Paul, again, today is going to remind them that they need to be foolish by worldly standards in order to truly understand true wisdom, God's wisdom. Then last week, we looked at Paul challenging the Corinthians to be careful in how they built the church, that each role that they played, whether they were a church leader or just a member of the church and a minister within it, they needed to be careful in their actions there because they would be held accountable someday. And also to remember that God's Spirit dwells in them, in the church, in the gathering of the church, in a very special and unique way. All right, So he reminds them of these truths and then jumps in here to verse 18. Let's read this together. Feel free to follow along on the screens, on your app, um, where the sermon notes are, and those sorts of things. All right, so it starts off, Paul says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So in these six verses, Paul really reaches kind of the the, the culmination of the argument that he's been been explaining over these last few chapters. All right, He's giving them the why of why he's told them all these things. And if, if you're here today, maybe you're a guest with us, Maybe you don't know Christ, maybe you've just come at the invite of a friend, or you're just here to kind of check things out and curious, maybe you don't know why you're here, you just felt led to be here this morning. If you you would say you don't have a personal relationship with Christ, I don't want you to check out today just because this message is geared directly to a church, right? So Paul's talking to Christians in Corinth. And, and so obviously the message is geared that. but don't, I would pray that you would stay engaged. Stay engaged for these next few minutes, because I really think, whether we're followers of Jesus or not yet followers of Jesus, that this message that Paul has for us, that God has through us in, in Scripture today, could be life-changing. So as we walk through the passage, we see first this, this point, this point that worldly wisdom is foolishness with God. Paul starts off, Verse 18 was saying, let no one deceive himself. Let no one deceive himself. What he's saying here is stop deceiving yourselves. Stop it. And and the Corinthians, they're thinking they're wise. They're like, we're too wise to be deceived. What what is he talking about? I mean, this is getting their attention. This is getting and continuing to get their attention. Paul, as he explains what what he means by this, is he's saying, you know, if anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, he should become a fool that he may become wise. So what is he talking about? What is he talking about? Well, we need to kind of make sure we know what we're talking about with with this idea of being foolish or fool and being wise, those sorts of things. He's not talking about becoming a fool and like the everyday things of life, or necessarily even being wise in those areas. This is, you know, not, not talking about how to grill a steak or, you know, any other kind of street smarts area of life, how to sew a dress together, any other kind of life skill like that necessarily. He's really talking in areas of, the, of God, of God, in terms of the knowledge of God, how, how to be saved, salvation, living the Christian life. These are the areas he's talking about, how, how we want to be wise in, yet the Corinthians are being foolish. All right, so we see this similar idea of, of how Jesus turns worldly wisdom on its head throughout Scripture. One, one of the examples is in Matthew 10 39, he says, Whoever finds his life will lose it, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So, just using this verse is kind of to illustrate this idea that, you know, it, it, this verse is saying, if we find our life on our own without the help of God, without trusting Him, we, we really haven't found anything at all. We're, we're deceiving ourselves. It's really foolish because we've actually lost our lives. But if we acknowledge God, if we turn control of our life over to him and, and in a sense lose it, we lose our life, that is when we really find it. That's when we find it. So the same idea between being foolish and being wise, um, he, kind uh, Paul is applying it in that same way. When he talks about being foolish according to the world, what is he talking about? Well, earlier, we saw this in one of the first sermons, and earlier in his letter to the church at Corinth, Paul told us what, it, what it, he's meaning. He said, for the word of the cross is folly, is foolish to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, so you think about the the gospel, the message of the cross, the the story of this Jewish guy. Especially these Corinthians are hearing it back in the first century. This Jewish guy, carpenter dude, he was thirty three years old. He died on a cross over there um, in Jerusalem. Yeah, he, he was he was a savior of the world, and he rose from the dead three days later. And, and he, you know, like. That this story, as they 're hearing it, you know we have two thousand years to look back on and kind of we, we have the benefit of that, but they 're hearing this for the first time, sometimes just by word of mouth and things, obviously they had some of the Old Testament scriptures, but it did kind of sound like foolishness to those who were, who were hearing it for the first time, and it still can sound somewhat foolish today for those who who don 't know Christ, so we, we need to be careful for those of us who are saved, we know. What truth is in this message? This message of the cross, this foolish so-called message of the cross and how powerful it really is. This is the way we must become fools. We must believe in the message of the cross. And in this way, in the next verse, Paul gives a reason why the Corinthians should reject the wisdom of the world. He gives another reason here. He says the wisdom of this world is folly with God. It's folly with God, so so, what are some examples of worldly wisdom as we think about this? So, the wisdom of this world, you know, I, again, we're not talking about technological advances, how the world is wise, and those are scientific discoveries, but specifically in the area of um, like knowledge of God, how we become saved, those sorts of things. I, I think if you ask a bunch of people that. Um, are not saved, don't know the Bible and stuff, what they think about those things, some worldly things that sound good and maybe they would believe or, you know, well, I'm just going to be a good person, right? I'm just going to be a good person. That's a a belief that's out there pretty prevalent today. As long as I don't kill anybody or do anything really bad, I'm pretty sure most of my good stuff will outweigh my mistakes every now and then and I'll be okay, right? That's how a lot of people think today. But we know from Scripture that we can never be good enough to earn God's favor. We can never be good enough to save ourselves. So this is, in a sense, foolishness. While the world thinks it's wise, it's really foolishness in God's eyes. Maybe another, another kind of thing along those lines is this idea of... of um, just being kind to one another, being, being kind or being tolerant. So I know we had a, kind of a good example last Sunday. I mean, if you saw on social media or in the news about um, pre- the former President Bush and Ellen DeGeneres enjoying the Cowboys game up in one of the sweet boxes together and they caught him on the jumbotron and then everybody was up in arms about how these two people could like be nice to each other when they disagree on so much. And, you know, we have this liberal Hollywood person with a conservative, you know, Republican president and oh my gosh. How are they enjoying one, one another's company? How can they be friends? This idea in our polarized society that that, that still can happen. I mean, that, it, was, it was kind of refreshing to see, in a sense of, and Ellen DeGeneres on her show talked about how she tries to be kind to people, not just those she agrees with. She's friends with President Bush, not because she agrees with him on everything, but she tries to be kind with people she disagrees with right? And, and well that is good, and it's certainly good, and, and honestly, kind of more Christ-like behavior than a lot of people who claim to know Christ act. I mean, that, that is. Christians, we can't stop there. We can't just be kind and tolerant, although we should, but we should take it a step further and love people. We should really, really love them, and that involves speaking the truth in love. It doesn't mean we strong-arm them. We can't strong-arm anybody into the faith or force somebody to, to believe the way we do. We can't. We can't do that. that. That's up to, that God can only change people's hearts, right? So we need, to, we need to, this idea that all roads may lead to heaven, not necessarily that Ellen was saying that then, but this idea of, of tolerance and your way to believe is fine. That, that's fine for you. Um, yeah, you, you go, you'll go do it. And while we have to do that to some extent, right? Because like, like I said, we can't force them. We, we need to speak the truth in love and make sure people know that we love them enough to, to risk a relationship with them. Not by being mean and being a jerk, but sharing how God has transformed our lives and sharing the gospel with them. All right, so, so this, I, a couple of examples of maybe how worldly wisdom plays out in today's life. Next, and, the, and as he continues on in this, these verses, verse 19 and 20, he highlights how worldly wisdom is really foolishness to God by quoting the Old Testament a couple of times. We see it first, this is out of Job, He catches the wise in their craftiness. You see it here from Job 513. Really, Paul here is making the point uh, how in the sovereign working of the Lord, the intelligence of people is often their undoing. Right? So we think we're being smart, kind of doing stuff our own ways. We come up with some pretty cool things, and 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 God often uses those things and, and kind of in a sense causes in his sovereignty for them to be our undoing. You know, we won't go into all the necessarily context of the book of Job and those sorts of things, but, but you see him reference that. And then next, Psalm 94.11 is, is where he is quoting from here. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. And in Psalm 94.11, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. So it's a little bit of a, a paraphrase that Paul is using from what is what a lot of the New Testament writers would use as the Septuagint which that was the Greek translation of the Old Testament scripture, which was originally in Hebrew. So, they, so some of the words would come across a little bit differently, but have the same meaning. And in here, he's really kind of paraphrasing. You see the differences in there? He changes out the word man for the word wise and that sort of thing. And it got me thinking as I, I was looking at this and like, so if a biblical author paraphrases a biblical text within the Bible, is it really a paraphrase? I, I don't know if that's just a Bible nerd joke or what, but you know, I, it's inspired scripture. He was inspired, so is he really paraphrasing? Anyways, maybe, maybe you'll get it later. It's like one of those questions of, you know, if a tree falls in the forest, but nobody hears it, does it really make a sound? Like that, that kind of thing. I don't know. That just came to my mind. Maybe I'm kind of weird. All right, but you can get the point that he's trying to get to. He, he's really applying it directly towards the Corinthian situation. He knows the thoughts of, of what we're thinking on our own, and, and how futile they are. in God's sovereignty, he makes wise thoughts of man. He makes them foolish. So Paul reiterates the, the futility of human wisdom and thinking, and next, he, he draws a, a pretty big conclusion, a pretty big conclusion. He's, next, he says, "Since worldly wisdom is foolishness, we should not boast in men." Okay, he kind of continues on. Remember, boasting in men for them in this church. They were wanting to kind of um, team up with one of the, their church leaders. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, or Peter. They were wanting to kind of team up with them and pit one another against each other. And it, it, Paul has been telling them over and over that this human wisdom, this, this kind of thing of doing this is going to lead you nowhere. So he says we should not boast in men, that first part of verse 21. So, So how do we... Do this? Do, do we participate in this today? I'm hoping, and I haven't really heard of any rumors of everybody having a favorite pastor or anything like that here at Fellowship of Grace. Obviously, if you did, hopefully it's me. But it, since most of you don't, I know um, that was a joke. Um, we, we, we don't have this huge issue of, you know, people having favorite people and, and kind of be dividing the church over, yeah, I'm on Pastor John's team or I'm on, I want Pastor Michael back because it's just miserable without him or, you know, that, that, all that kind of thing, all right? So, so we, we understand that, and, and I don't want, you know, even from today, you, you shouldn't boast about any of our sermons or messages. We, we want you to boast in, in Christ. We want you to fall more in love with Jesus, so what, what are some ways that we do boast in men? How do we apply this? So if we shouldn't boast in men, besides just going, okay, check, I don't want to boast in any men, what they were really doing, especially in the Corinthian church, was putting their identity in these men. They were putting their identity in these men above their identity in Christ, their own identities in Christ. And so I think there are many things in our lives that we do this with. We, we could do it with our, our work, our career, our possessions, the things we have. Maybe it's our, we find our identity in our kids, Right? Our kids are our grandkids, and this, it's not bad to, to brag on your, your kids. You can definitely be proud of them and that sort of thing. We're not talking about that. But if, you, if your identity and worth is kind of wrapped up in who they are rather than who you are in Christ, then, then you're in a sense we're boasting in them. So not only should we not boast in men because worldly wisdom is foolishness, but Paul continues on in the verses and basically gives us another reason why it's silly to be boasting in men. Right? He does this in this next point. He says we should not boast in men because everything is ours. Everything is ours. He goes back to the title of the sermon. All things are yours. He says this in verse, the second part of verse 21, and then also in verse 22 expounds on it. For all things are yours. What? What is he? What is he talking about? Right? Is he joking? Is he joking or is he trying to use hyperbole and exaggeration to just get their attention again? It, what, what is Paul really saying here? Come on, man. Come on, Paul. Help us out here. And he does. He does, thankfully. But I, I do think, as I mentioned, this is the big point for today. We need, we need the Holy Spirit's help as well. We need the Holy Spirit to help us. I mean, this, this phrase, all things are yours, it's like um, one pastor um, explains it. He says this is like a lightning bolt of truth. Right here. I mean, it is quick. It's what, four words, four, five words, for all things are yours. I mean, it's, it's so brief, but it's, it's so bright and powerful, so extraordinary when we really unpack what it means. Is he really saying what it says? I, I think he is. I think he is. I think he really is. And we have to properly understand it. We'll spend a couple minutes doing that now. I, I want us to think of it not necessarily in terms of possession or ownership. Although there are some certain aspects of that, but, but really I, I believe he's talking more in terms of submission or or benefit. Alright, I'll explain what I mean by that, looking at a couple of other verses. But when we think about all things being ours, all things being submitted to us. Alright, look at Ephesians 1.22. It says this, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. All right, so he, the first he being God, putting all things under his being Jesus. So God basically putting Jesus in authority of of and the head of all things to the church. All right. So so we know Jesus is. And what Paul's saying is that you get to share in Christ's authority in a sense in his um, basically everything being under him. We we do. We, we we are, we'll see in a minute, co-heirs with Christ. We get to share ultimately in his victory over sin and death. In Romans eight, thirty seven through thirty nine we see this, No, in all things we are more in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure, and this is Paul writing again, you'll see the kind of common language from first Corinthians, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How are we more than conquerors? What is he talking about? What are these things and in those verses? It's, he's just got done talking about you know, famine and, and just devastation in this life, bad things in, the lo- in this life, but we can be more than conquerors in the midst of those. He's saying we, we don't serve the things of this world. We reign with Christ as conquering victors, and nothing will be able to separate us from that love as we see there at the end of those verses. And, and a few verses before this, it unpacks it even more. What does it mean to be more than conquerors? We are more than conquerors. Well, in Romans 8, 28, it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. A common verse that many of you probably have heard, um, but sometimes it's, it's misapplied in, in on coffee cups and in other, other places where you see these kinds of things, right? What is he really talking about? He, he's it, When we're more than conquerors in Christ, when, when, when we realize that everything in this life is really kind of, in some ways, in submission to us, everything is for the good of those who love him, as this verse says. The good is not always happy, good, happy, kind of, you know, things that make us warm and fuzzy, right? The good may be hard things in this life, but... It is helping us be conformed to the image of Christ, conformed into a closer image of Christ, and that is really what the goal is. I mean, everything in this life belongs to us as believers in Christ. Everything, everything we have, everything that happens to us, it can be for good. It can be for good. God can use it for good, for our ultimate benefit. I mean, that, that should free us. That should, should kind of take a weight off our shoulders, right? I mean, it, it's such a blessing that we have. I mean, he, Paul is here is one of the, one of the important things I think that we can see in this. He's telling them that they're settling for less than they should, right? He's telling the church at Corinth, hey, you're, you're like boasting about me, Paul. Dude, you've got way more than just me, all right? You should, you shouldn't find your identity in me. You shouldn't be, you know, dividing the church over me. We're all on the same team, but you have so much more and when you, we think about this, I think sometimes as believers, we're, you know, we're told to repent of our sins. That's, that's one of the things that the Bible commands for us to do. And we think repent means just to kind of let go of our old ways and be like, all right, I did it, God, thanks. And we forget that repent doesn't just mean to let go and look at the ground, but repent means to, to turn, to let go of our old, but to turn and face Christ and all that he has in store for our lives. I mean, here he's casting this brief but broad vision of what they need to hold on to, not just to what they need to let go of. So we need to not settle for less when we already have more. I think this happens in our lives so much when, when we get distracted. We get distracted with things. I, I think as we continue on in this verse, um, th- that lightning bolt, you know, that I was talking about, thankfully Paul begins to unpack it a little bit because the thing about lightning, as you know, is, is it's bright and it's powerful and it's quick, and it sometimes causes us to shield our eyes from it. We can't really look at it or whatever, and we miss it. We, we miss its full effect. So Paul, just as an analogy, starts to kind of give us some snapshots of this lightning bolt, what he really means, how he helps us understand, hey, I'm not exaggerating, guys. All things are yours. So we see he starts to say what those things are, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. So he says, church leaders, you don't belong to them. Church, you, you don't belong to them. They, they are yours. They have been given to the church to serve under the authority of Christ. You don't need to boast in them; boast only in Christ. And the next, he next he goes, he says, "The world is yours, right?" Now, that's a pretty big, big thing. I, mean, I guess he could have said the universe, but but the world's pretty big. I mean, this this is this is a big thing, and and the world encompasses a lot of a lot of stuff that's maybe good and that we would want to like say, "Cool, that's mine, that's mine." But then there's a lot of stuff in this world that we want to be like nope, I don't, I, don't, I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want to go through that thing. I, I don't want to experience this. I, I don't want that. I don't have anything to do with it. And, 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 but Paul is saying, this is all yours. This is all yours, even the suffering, the hardships. He goes on and says, life or death are yours. Life or death are yours. In Christ, we share his power over life and death. Our lives are to be lived, to bring God glory. Death has lost its sting, as we sing about in the several of the songs that we talked that we sung this morning. It's, it's lost its saying. We could say death to death. Death to death. It is ours, and in that it has been defeated, and we can share in that victory. And then we see the present or the future. I mean, he's using some pretty big, all encompassing terms. The present, that's everything that's, that's now. The future, everything that, that will happen, everything that will come. In Christ, we have no need to worry. We have no need to worry. No matter what is going on now or what will happen in the future, we are secure in Christ our identity and our position in Christ it's it's solidified it can, won't be changed i know many of you're going through some difficult times right now difficult times right now and you 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 don't want to own them in a sense that you wish you'd, you'd had no part in them maybe maybe it's a difficult health situation maybe it's a, a just a difficult relationship uh strain and whether it's you're your, with a close family member a marriage anything like that we we know that there's some difficult things going on. Maybe maybe you're struggling financially, trying to make ends meet and and it's just really hard. It's really hard. I, I think this truth that, that all things are ours, all things are yours what Paul is saying here, it can really shed some some light in the in the midst of these difficult things we go th- through. You know, it it can help us. I know my family has had a rough couple of years health-wise with my my wife Anna struggling with Lyme disease and all the effects of that. And we've got a difficult season ahead with our youngest son, Gideon, having surgery, a couple of surgeries in in St. Louis this winter, and he'll be in the hospital for weeks and things like that. And so when we think about those things, there's a lot of, there's a lot of times and, you know, that I'm scared. I want to say, I don't, I don't want that. I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't, I don't want what I've been through. I don't want what I'm going through. But when I think about this, it, it really, I'm reminded that, the joy we can have in Christ by, by realizing in all things in ours. It doesn't mean the absence of pain, but it, but it does point us to the presence of hope in the midst of our pain, right? And, and, and that can kind of, it doesn't necessarily erase all the scary things, but it does help us get through them and it helps us see kind of the, the, the end game. What, 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 the, what the goal is. God is, is working in our lives. He's allowing things and, and orchestrating events in our lives to, to mold us into a, a better image of his son, Jesus. And, and like I said, I, I want us to, this, we could talk about this forever and really maybe not even grasp all the facets, all the different sides of this. Paul, thankfully, um, helps us a little bit, unpack it, but we, we've got to be careful that we, we don't overlook this. We don't just close our eyes because it's bright and, sh- you know, kind of powerful and, and just move on. We need, we need to really think about this truth. And then the last point today, everything is ours because we belong to God through Christ. Everything is ours because we belong to God through Christ. So, so Paul continues kind of his train of thought here. He says, really the only reason that, that we can claim anything as believers is because we are in Christ. We are his. The first thing he says, and you are Christ's. Romans 8, 16 and 17 basically tell us the same thing. Paul, again, is the author of Romans. We've read several verses, passages from that letter. Romans 8, 16 and 17 say, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So there's a lot in this verse. The main point is we, we, we are children of God. We are, as I talked about at the beginning, we have been welcomed into God's family by receiving the gift of the gospel, and there's a lot that comes with that. There's a lot. I mean, our ultimate inheritance is eternal life. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that, but we have a purpose now to live for. We have a hope and, and, and to go through the, the messiness of this life. I mean, what more could we want for our inheritance? We, we, why would we want to hold so tightly to the things of this world when we've been given so much more? What a perspective shift that could be. Finishes up verse 23 by saying, and Christ is God's, all right? So you're Christ, and Christ is God's. And I mean, we could say we are God's in that sense, not literal God's, but his possession. You know, we're not God's, God's. Um, Jesus is God's son. I mean, that's what this verse is saying. The key, he's the king who reigns at the right hand of God. His power that he, that he has over everything and, and the dominion, the control, it flows out of his relationship and connection with, with God the Father. So so a quick recap as we, as we finish today. That we, You see in those verses, we see in the, all of these points, we, we follow this train of thought. He says, starts off by saying, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived, right? Don't be deceived because worldly wisdom, the ways of this world, are, they're foolish. Now, because the ways of this world are foolish, don't boast in men. That's just silly. That's just silly. Don't boast in men. Don't boast in men because all things are yours in Christ, right? All things are yours because you are Christ's and Christ is God's. So he, as he kind of weaves his, his thoughts through there, we, we see a picture of really who we are what we have in Christ. So I think one of the things Paul was wanting the Corinthian church, how, how does he want them to respond to this? I think first he wanted them to repent. Repent of their, their sinful ways, but, but not, again, not just letting go and stopping there, but to turn to turn from their old ways and look at Christ. Look at Christ. See that this truth, all things are yours. And, and to let that kind of flow in, in, into their lives and, and let them live that out. As we close today, I want you to just um, bow your heads for a moment. You can close your eyes or, or not. But just to think about these things for uh, as we finish up this morning. I want you to, while your heads are bowed, to imagine what it would look like for you to, to not just mentally agree with the truth that Paul is telling us this morning, not just to kind of say, okay, yeah, that that sounds good, but but to really live it out in your daily life. What would that look like? Imagine if your identity and your security was completely wrapped up in Christ and, and what he's done for you and what he's given you instead of how much money you make or how much is in your 401k, how successful your kids may be, or, or how many people liked your Facebook or Instagram post? You know, you, you think about it, there are so many things in this life that we get wrapped up in with our identities. But imagine, for a moment, as we close, the freedom associated with living out the true wealth that we have in Christ, this freedom of not being a slave to anything in this life, that all of life's circumstances, both the good, and the bad, they, they can serve us in a way to help mold us and form us into a closer image of Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning to understand this. I know some of these truths in Scripture are, they're hard to wrap our minds around completely and, and to figure out how to apply them in daily life, God. but I pray this morning that you would at least just um, allow this as we think about it. Um, not, not just to slip our minds, but as we, as we discuss it in our community groups this week, um, God, I pray that you would really allow it to, to go down deep into our souls and our, our hearts and minds so that it would affect the way we live each and every day. God, we, we have so much with Jesus. Help us not settle for less. It's in your son's name, amen.